Hello and welcome to United's podcast and sermon archives. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at fergusunited.org or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and we hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. And come to find out he had just left the doctor. And the doctor had informed Andrew that there was cancer in his body. And so what else do you do? We made our way into the sanctuary and we grabbed a bottle of oil and we anointed Andrew. I say we, it was Janessa and Andrew and myself. Nobody else was there. We didn't have any of the lights on. We didn't have any music playing. I didn't stand up and preach as they sat there awkwardly listening to me, just the two of them. We just prayed a prayer of faith. And they went on their way. And it wasn't just a a week or two later that Andrew came to church with the report that they had redone the test and there was no cancer in his body. We serve a God that's able to heal. We serve a God that's able to do miraculous things. I read testimony this morning that the Global Missions Department had put out in in a country, a foreign country. They had 12,000 people in attendance to a conference. Seven thousand of those people reported receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost, speaking in an unknown language for the first time. Seven thousand miracles were noted and documented, including blinded eyes being opened, deaf ears being opened, people standing up out of wheelchairs. Why? Because faith rose to a place where the people there that were in need said, I'm going to take what's being presented to me. I'm going to receive that. We struggle... With faith, I think sometimes in America, most of these reports of mass miracles come from overseas because they don't have as many distractions as we do. There's, there's no reason for them to be as cynical or um, as skeptical as we are sometimes. They can receive with faith because what other hope do they have? It's not like they can approach the healing of God and say, well, if God doesn't heal me, or if God doesn't come through in my situation, I'll just talk to the doctor or the banker. There is no doctor. There is no banker. They're looking for a miracle and they, they hear the preached Word of God and the soil is soft enough for the root to permeate and to reach deep in and it produces fruit. The Gospels reveal to us some incredible things that Jesus did while He was here on earth. When you're reading through the Gospels, it's just... One miraculous event after another. We read about a woman who was healed from a long-standing condition seemingly on accident. Jesus had no intention of healing her. He was was making His way through a crowd to go and perform a miracle for someone else that had come to Him and, and asked and requested of Him a miracle. And this woman pushes her way through and grabs a hold of His coattail and and healing just happens. That's pretty incredible. He didn't exert any effort. He didn't try really hard. He just, he just healed the woman. Blind men come to Jesus, or a blind man comes to Jesus and wants his sight healed, and, and Jesus heals this man's sight with spit and dirt. Now you say, that's gross. Yeah, but I bet you couldn't do it. Don't try that. <laughs> you better have clearly heard from God if you're going to try that. He spits in the ground, makes a little mud, rubs it in this guy's eyes, tells him to go wash him out, and he receives his sight. There's a process there, but the man ultimately receives his sight. He's sleeping on the bow of a boat in a storm so great that his disciples are afraid for their life. And they're bewildered by the fact that that Jesus is sleeping. I don't know if he's on the bow of the boat, but he's sleeping nonetheless. They're getting tossed around. They're taking on water. The winds are blowing. The thunder's cracking. And he's just snoring away. And they wake him up and they ask the question, Don't you care that we're going to die? Don't, don't you care? To which Jesus just says, Peace, be still. And the water and the wind and every, every element of nature immediately obeys the voice of God. That's incredible. And when you think about it, that's really something. We can read past it so quickly. In another sense, again, in the storm, 
He walks out on the water. That's incredible on a calm day. If it was just a nice sunny day and the Scripture said Jesus took a stroll on the water, that would be impressive. But the Bible says that the wind was contrary to the ship that the disciples in. They had been rowing all night. It was, it was stronger than 12 men rowing with all they had. There was a, a pretty rough uh, surface on the water. And here comes Jesus. He's just strolling by. I, I really like the passage because the, the Bible says that Jesus would have just passed him by. He, told, he said, I'm going to meet you on the other side. He would have left him right in the storm, but one of them seen him and they began to cry out, called his attention. He fed multitudes on several occasions. One time there was 5,000 men plus women and children. Another time there was 4,000. And he just, just takes some bread, takes some fish, and he just feeds, feeds the multitudes. And then when he's done, they get all the leftovers together and there's enough for Jesus and the disciples to eat. That's a miracle. That's miraculous. On a few occasions, he even raises the dead. We think of Jairus' daughter, who Jairus had come to Jesus and, and said, please come, my daughter's sick, she's in bad shape. And then while they're making their way there, one of his, his servants or a friend, someone that was close, comes to him and says, don't, don't bother Jesus anymore, your daughter has died. And Jesus walks into the room full of mourning people and he says, don't worry folks, she's just sleeping. So much so that they started laughing and mocking him because they had just watched this young girl pass from this life into the next. And he takes her by the hand. He tells her to arise. And up she stands. He says, hey, get, get her something to eat. She's probably hungry after all this. That's incredible. Yet none of these actions were God's attempt to display His might. I found it interesting as I looked through Scripture a little bit this week that Jesus not once approached an individual seeking to do a miracle in their life. All the people that He walked by, all the miracles that we read, He never engaged a blind man and said, Hey, come on, please, let me, let me give you your sight. Listen, I know there's, there's an ailment in your body. There's something wrong with your hand. Let me Allow me to do a miracle in your life. He wasn't out trying to, to flex for the people to see just how incredible He was. None of these things were, were God's attempt to put His power on display. In fact, oftentimes He desired of them, don't tell anyone what happened. Don't, don't tell anybody. <laughs> you kidding me? You just you Yeah, but, but just keep that to yourself. I had leprosy. Now I don't. Yeah, but... That, he wasn't out trying to show off. So my question for us today is what does it look like when God flexes? I mean, what's it look like when God decides, I'm going to show off a little bit. I'm going to put my might and my power and my glory on display. What does that look like? Because this was just the, the things we're reading about, they were just the natural byproduct of being around Jesus. I mean, the, the lady touches him, and he's not even paying attention to her, but, but that's, it, healing just flows from him. He said, virtue went out from me. Not because I was trying to be cocky, not because I was, I was looking for an opportunity to assert myself, it's just, it's just who I am. And when somebody touches me, they can't help but, but be changed. And, and somebody, somebody touched me. He wasn't flexing, but the defined muscles of any bodybuilder would be obvious to those around them. When you're out to eat or you're walking through town and someone who has given a lot of attention and time to exercise and bodybuilding walks by, they don't have to say, hey, look at me. I work out. <laughs> I pick up heavy stuff. They don't have to do that. You, it, it's just an obvious observation as they walk by that, hey, that individual most likely spends a lot of time in the gym. They're not flexing, but it, it's just a byproduct of being around them. This is how the miracles could be viewed that we read about in the Gospels. 
Jesus wasn't flexing, but you couldn't help but notice. I mean, spiritually speaking, he had biceps upon his biceps. The dude was huge. He was ripped. But when seen in those moments, or what is seen in those moments, pale in comparison to what is seen when they do flex. When the bodybuilders step out and they do pick their arms up. I mean, I don't want to pop any buttons or anything here. And they they begin to strain their muscles. And all of a sudden, parts of their skin that were flat are no longer flat. And the veins come out. And and all yeah, it's disgusting. I know, but that's what they're doing. And and the display of power and size that is seen in that moment, it overwhelms what was seen when they just walk by. <laughs> yeah, they were doing something. We have to be honest. At least every male in this room, at some point or another, you've stood in front of a mirror. And you have flexed your muscles. We've all done it. Hopefully it was when you were a child and you haven't spent a lot of time there recently. Honey, come in here and see this. Hurry. Can't hold it much longer. But at some point or another, there's just something, something in the male mind that we want to we wanna know what it looks like when we flex. And you know, some mirrors are magical because what you're seeing is really not what's there. Scrawny little nine-year-old boys like, oh, eat your heart out, Arnold. <laughs> oh. I don't know any other bodybuilders or I'd use their name too. Take that. Calves of steel. Like toothpick legs. <laughs> but what's it look like when God flexes? When God decides, you know what, okay, it's time. Romans 9 informs us that that is what we're seeing a glimpse of. We're seeing a glimpse of this when we read about the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Romans 9 and 17. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. God said, hey, I'm going to show my power through this situation. And before we get too sidetracked, it seems like every time this conversation comes up, the Scripture says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we say, how could God harden Pharaoh's heart and then punish him? A whole other message. But if you study, prior to that, several times, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Okay, so now you don't have to be distracted by that. But, but there did come a time when God said, okay, you've gone far enough. I'm going to make an example out of you. You have betrayed your word to me. You, you've pursued evil uh, enough times that I will harden your heart. He said, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show forth my power in this situation, in thee. And boy, did God show His power. He started to flex. He, he started warming up at first. It was plague after plague as God poured out judgment in a preparation to bring His people out of an evil land. We read about gnats and frogs and blood and darkness and boils and they just kept coming. Plague after plague after plague as if God was standing on a stage putting on a display of His power. One flex after another, but it never got through to Pharaoh. Then as though he was uh, conserving his energy for one last set of poses, he puts on an outstanding display of power at the end. An angel passes through the land and death consumes the firstborn of everyone not found under the blood. God takes His people through the water as they traverse the Red Sea and they pass through on dry ground. It was here that their former taskmasters were completely destroyed as they tried to mimic God's display of power. If your people can walk, if you can flex, then so can we. And Egypt pursued God's people through the Red Sea and the waters came crashing down and they were destroyed. 
He continues to display His power and might after they are brought out of the land of Egypt as He leads them by His Spirit represented by a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. He put on a great display. But even in, in, the, in light of all of this, God's full power is veiled. We're not really seeing in this image what it looks like when God flexes. It's almost as though there were a, a silk screen put up and the, the bodybuilder was behind the screen flexing. And we can see the shadow. We see the vague image of what it looks like. And man, it really is impressive, but it's still not the full picture. It's not the full picture. Some detail can be extracted from what we see, but there's more to the story. This begs the question, what does it really look like when God flexes? If the veil wasn't there, what is it that we would see? What, what image would be put before our eyes? The Apostle Paul provides direction to us as we seek the answer to this question in Romans 1 and 16. <clears throat> He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and to the Greek. It's the gospel. The, the true power play of God. It's, it's the gospel. If we want to know what the power of God looks like, the gospel is where we have to turn our attention. God's greatest miracle ever performed was not creation when He spoke and nature was obedient to His voice. It wasn't His ability to shut the mouths of hungry lions in Daniel's situation or to deliver Goliath into the hand of a boy named David. God's greatest miracle was not in calming the seas or casting out devils. The greatest miracle ever performed by God was the salvation of mankind. And the vehicle that He used to bring about this miraculous act was the Gospel. It's the Gospel. The Gospel. Great, you say. The Gospel. That's what it looks like. But what is the Gospel? Because that sounds good and it preaches easy, but left undefined, we still don't know what it looks like when God flexes. The Gospel, the, the writer said, was the power of God unto salvation. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Would anyone like to give me or offer to me a, a three-word explanation of the gospel? Good. I'll preach it again. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? Simply defined, it is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain." For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So I have a series of questions that I'm going to ask you, and the answer is found in those four verses. What is He declaring unto them? Verse 1. The gospel. the gospel. Thank you. Yes. I'm not, I'm not uh, setting you up. I promise. <laughs> Everybody's like, I'm saying nothing. He's declaring unto them the gospel. How were these individuals that he is writing to saved? Verse 2. 
They were saved by the gospel. The people that the scripture or, or the writer Paul is writing to, the Corinthian church, were saved by the gospel. Now, there's a lot of people today and there's a lot of ideas that say we're saved by grace and we're saved by faith and we're saved by our recital of the sinner's prayer. But the scripture says that these folks were saved by the gospel. It does say that it would be null and void if they believed in vain. So I do not argue with the biblical concept that we are saved by grace. If it were not for the grace of God, we would not have access to the gospel. I don't argue that we're saved by faith because if we do not truly put our trust in the gospel, the scripture says that it becomes of no effect in my life. But it does say that faith and grace alone are not enough. These folks were saved by the gospel. That's what saved them. What did they have to remember? It's a little harder to find the answers. You have to look at verse 2 and verse 1. Good job on the screen going back and forth. What is it that these folks had to keep in memory? What? The preaching of the gospel. The of the gospel. Yeah, they had to remember. Where is it at? Verse 2. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you. Okay, that's great. What did he preach? Let's go back to verse 1. <laughs> I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. They had to keep their mind, their memory focused on the gospel because the gospel was important. And so, we finally get to verses 3 and 4, and I ask again, what is the gospel? The death, the burial, and the resurrection. What was it that Paul was preaching when he got ready to inform folks how to be saved? He was preaching the gospel. He was preaching the message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to take a little while today. And my goal here today, I know that I've preached the gospel to everyone here multiple times, but I'm trying to, to set our memory back on what it is that saved us. I'm trying to put an image before our eyes of the, the flexing power of God. We're going to unveil the flex. Unveil the flex that we've seen in the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. With this information in mind, let us go back to the display of power that were shown in Exodus. The death angel passes through the land. The death angel. There's a lot of times in my life I, I want angels to intervene in my situation. I don't want the Lord sending the, the death angel my way. You better be specific when you pray. God sent an angel and the Lord's like, oh, okay. That's not how it went down. But the blood of the Lamb had to be applied to the post of the homes of those who were committed to God. His people were signified by the blood put over their doorposts. So when the death angel would pass by to bring about judgment and the ultimate final blow of judgment that would cause Pharaoh and all of Egypt to eject the people of God from their land, it was this blood that would hold the death angel at bay. It calls to mind a time when Jesus approaches John the Baptist and He lifts up His eyes and He makes a statement to the people that were well aware of the verses that were studying and reading. And He says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. I'm telling you, if you're going to be saved, it's going to be because the blood of God is applied to your life. When the judgment comes and the death angel passes by, when the rapture of the church takes place, when, when, when revelation gets ready to unfold and judgment starts to roll out, you don't want to be found out from under the blood. You don't want to be found out from under the blood. When that angel passed by, every single home 
that didn't have the blood applied, the firstborn child, male child, died. And that's harsh. That's harsh. Well, it's not really that harsh because all they had to do was be obedient and the death angel just kept on going. All they had to do was put themselves under the blood and the death angel would just pass right on by. There was a death of Jesus. A lamb had to die in order for this mercy to be given. We say we're saved by mercy. And it's such a sweet word as it rolls off of our lips. But lest we forget mercy was paid for with blood. The mercy of God. What does that mean? It means that that I did not get what I did deserve. Death and humiliation on the cross. But somebody did receive what I deserved. And it was Jesus in my place. It was the Lamb who was willing to shed His blood on my behalf. So I respond to the Gospel. I become obedient to the Gospel through my willingness to repent. Not crocodile tears and, oh Jesus, I'm so sorry, so that I can go out and continue to live the same life. That would have been about as foolish as applying the blood to the doorpost in Egypt and then going and spending the night at your neighbor's house who didn't do the same. You would have been affected. We have to live under the blood. We have to remain under the blood. A constant relationship with that cross of Calvary. When I come to a place of repentance, when God convicts my heart, let it be the the initial time God convicts me of a lifestyle of sin or an incremental time as I continue to grow in my relationship with Him and He reveals more to me and He shows me a little bit more and there's another conviction that comes and there's another word that's preached and there's something else that challenges my soul. Every single time I've got to come to a place where I die out to self there's still a death that has to take place in obedience to the Gospel. Jesus said it like this in Luke 9 and 23. He said to them all, and if you read this in context, His disciples are there. If that's going to stay like that, we can just shut it off. Is it giving you trouble? We'll just turn it off. He's talking to both His disciples and a great multitude that's before Him. This wasn't for the spiritually elite. I'm in Luke 9 and 23. And He said to them all, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. We see the cross and our mind goes to grace and mercy and joy and happiness, but Jesus is talking to a group of people that did not understand yet what his cross would produce. When they seen the cross, they seen the cruelest and most public form of capital punishment that existed on the face of the planet at the time. They did not see salvation when they viewed the cross. They had walked by the decaying bodies of other criminals that had been left on a cross as a sign to everybody else. Don't do what they did. And Jesus says, hey, you want to follow me? Grab your cross. Let's go. Ouch. <laughs> um, we like you and all, but, but I don't know. Repentance is no different. It, 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 I like the terminology that he uses. It's kind of like Jesus was a smart guy. He said, deny himself. What is Repentance. It's a self-denial. A denial of the desires of the flesh. I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to think like that any longer. I'm not going to have that attitude any longer. I'm not going to engage in that activity any longer. There's a part of me that still wants to. There's, there's a desire of the flesh, but I'm going to deny myself. And I'm going to take up my cross and follow Jesus. Romans 8, 12, and 13. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. We could probably all relate to that. We're debtors. We owe somebody something. He clarifies, not to the flesh. You don't owe your flesh nothing. Your flesh has never got you anything but trouble. Momentary happiness. said we're, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if we live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, 
ye shall live. What does mortify mean? Give you a hint. There's a when you have a, a corpse and they have to go, there's a mortician that works on them. Mortify. It's speaking of death. Kill the deeds of the flesh. Bring bring death about to the deeds of the flesh. How do we do that? The scripture says it's through the Spirit. Through living, and we're going to get there in a minute, but through living after the Spirit, following after the Spirit, it gives us the ability to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Repentance is a command in the gospel. It's a way that the Lord chooses to flex and show forth His power of salvation. This veil is torn back a little farther and reveals what is displayed by the Israelites passing through the water. Can anybody take a guess? The gospel. There's a there's a second thing. There was the death. You're on you're on the right track. There's the death. There's the burial. Jesus didn't just die and get left hanging on a cross like most criminals would have been in the day. But there was a man by the name of Joseph who beseeched that that they would give him the permission to take down the body of Jesus, and he buried that body in a tomb that was his own. He was buried in the ground. But we're not buried in the ground, we're buried in the water. So just like the death angel passed by and there was a, a, a sign, a shadow of the full power of repentance that displayed, now we see the Old Testament people of God walking through the water. And we see a shadow again of a powerful flexing maneuver of God called baptism. I can't be any more clear than Scripture, so I'll just read it to you. Romans 6 and 4. Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism. I mean, it can't be any more clear. How do I obey the command of Scripture? How, how, what, what do I got to, when I'm trying to help somebody be saved, should I lead them in a fancy prayer? No, I should tell them, you need to repent of your sins. And once you've repented of your sins, what you need to do is you need to be buried just like Jesus was buried. But the good news is, we don't have to give you a straw and throw dirt over your face and hope you can get enough air to survive until we dig you back up. The good news is, well, you can go down in a watery grave. You can pass through the water just like the children of Israel did. You can be buried with Him in baptism. And we relate to and obey the gospel through baptism. Colossians 2 and 12, we see the same terminology, buried with Him in baptism. We see this terminology used again, emphasizing the importance uh, and our need to be buried in baptism. Furthermore, Acts 2 and 38 informs us that when we're baptized in the name of Jesus, it is for the remission of our sins. See, we, we can find mercy and we can find forgiveness in repentance, but we still have spotted garments. It's as though you, I don't know, I don't want to use any, any extreme examples. You're a child and you spill the Kool-Aid. And you ask mom to forgive you for spilling the Kool-Aid. And mom's having a good day. So just at that request, you receive mercy. And forgiveness is given, but your clothes are still covered in Kool-Aid. You, you still have the, the remnants and the effects and the power of Kool-Aid covering you. The remission of sins is more than the forgiveness of sins, but it is the full and adequate taking away of sins. They're no longer laid charge. So all of us prior to coming to God had found ourselves in situations where we had told lies. And we don't like terms like this, but what, is, what do you call someone that tells lies? A liar. We at all, or, or most of us at some point or another, Many people had taken something that did not belong to them. What are those people called? Thieves. Thieves. We had all hated or, or strongly disliked one person or another. And the Bible says, Jesus speaking, said if you hate your brother, it's the same as murder. So we come to Jesus completely in bad shape. All of us. No, no one, not even one, comes to God and says, See, I... I'm, I'm a good person. I, I've done everything right. So uh, we'll just work out a deal. No, no. God didn't 
get a good deal when he saved any of us. He didn't go home saying, yes, boy, did I look out on that one. No, 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 no. no we, we were on the receiving end. And, and we come to him and we ask for forgiveness. And, and he says, yeah, I, I forgive you. But we're still, we've got little sticky notes all over. Thief, liar, murderer, slanderer. All of these things that we, and we have no power to remove those. But remember what happened when the Egyptians tried to follow the the people of Israel through the Red Sea? The waters came crashing down and the very things that used to hold them bound and captive and in slavery was completely destroyed. God was communicating something to His people. When you go through the waters of baptism, the chains that used to hold you are completely broken and forever severed and they no longer have an effect on your life anymore. There's power in baptism. It's not semantics. It's not a public display of a private faith. It's a command of Scripture and something that I must do in order to be obedient to the Gospel. It's baptism. Finally, the last veil or the last of the veil is removed, and we see what is illustrated by the Spirit leading God's people by a cloud and a pillar of fire. We see the the signification of a resurrection of Jesus. Notice that on the cross, Jesus gave up the ghost. Nobody took the life of God. No one mandated that His life be taken from Him. He gave up the ghost. He willingly gave His life for us. And at that time, the Spirit left Him. He became a corpse. That that bag of flesh lost its ability to live. And three days later, at His own accord, He sent the self-same Spirit back into that bag of flesh and it lived again. This separates Jesus from every other individual throughout all of history who has ever claimed to be God. And there have been others, but they have all died, and they have mostly been buried, and they have never resurrected. But God, of His own accord, and without the help of any other, said, you know what? It's been long enough. I think I'll re-enter that body. I think I'll show myself to my people once again. I'm going to rise again because I have authority over death and hell. And He did just that. This is what happens when we're filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We receive the Spirit of God. The same Spirit that He used to walk this earth in the form of a man comes and lives and dwells in you. It lives in you. The same Spirit that Jesus had when He walked around and cast out devils and healed the sick and lived a lifestyle above sin, you can have the same thing. It's called the infilling of the Holy Ghost. When the Spirit of God fills you, you're going to know because the same thing that's going to happen to you that happened to every single person that was filled with the Holy Ghost in the Bible, you're going to speak with other tongues. For the sake of time, I will not read all of the Scriptures, but you can study it in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 19. Notice that this, when they walked through the the Red Sea and they made it to the other side, there wasn't a a great display of cloud and fire that exploded before their eyes and then vanished into the horizon. But there was a cloud by day and there was a pillar of fire by night. And that is where the children of Israel took their cue. The multitude, million plus people, were stationary as long as the cloud or the pillar was stationary. But no matter the time of day, no matter the time of night, no matter the season, nor the weather, no outside circumstances would deter them from following after that cloud. And and there were times when the cloud or the pillar would begin to move and a process would start to take place. Tents would start coming down. Everything would start to be gathered up. They would put it on their backs. They would put it on their animals. And they would follow after the Spirit of God. Why is it that so many people find themselves repented of their sin, baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, and then not living for God? It's because we fail to follow after the Spirit. 
The initial display is, is spectacular. Man, was that incredible. God just filled me with the Spirit. Wow! But six months later, it's not as exciting when it's the middle of the night and I'm looking out of the corner of my tent and people are starting to scurry around and I come out rubbing my eyes and there that pillar is moving again and I don't want to move because I'm tired and I've had a hard day and there's things going on in my life and so I can make a conscious decision, you know what, I'm going to leave my tent right here. I'm going to go right back to bed and I'm just going to let that thing drift away. I'll catch up tomorrow. But the Spirit moves much faster than any of us think. And that kind of attitude and mentality leaves us far behind where we want to be. Not living for God even after this initial experience. In like manner as they followed after it obediently, intently, intentionally, every time it moved, no matter where it took them, we must learn to stay close to God by learning to follow after the Spirit. God didn't fill you with the Holy Ghost so you could feel good for a few minutes. He filled you with the Holy Ghost so it could be like reins in the mouth of a horse. And He could guide and direct your life. And He could lead you. And He could take you to places that you, you never imagined being. The journey's not always comfortable, but the destination is ultimately worth anything we go through. How are we going to make it to heaven? How, how are we going to live above sin? How are we going to overcome this life? I know how. We're going to follow after the Spirit. We're going to seek after God. We're going to make sure we're full of the Holy Ghost. Not just partially full. Not, I don't want just a little bit of God. I don't want to fill God just on Sunday or on Wednesday. I want to be full of God every day. I want to be in His Word. I want to be talking to Him in prayer. I want to be led and guided by the Spirit. That's how we get to where we're going. So what does it look like? What does it look like when God flexes? I've got an answer for you today. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like when God flexes. It looks like tears rolling down your face as you come to a place of repentance before God. God's going. Look at, look at the power of my salvation right there. Right. Look at that. Look at it. Look at it. Look at it. Ah! That's what it looks like. It's the image of you being plunged underwater in the name of Jesus. And God's in heaven. Ah! Take it, boy. Look at that. Woo! There's another one. God starts flexing. It looks like your arms held high and your head rolled back as you speak in tongues for the first time, as God fills you with the gift of the Holy Ghost. It doesn't matter if it's the first time or the thousandth time. It's the image and the flexing of God. See, we look outward and we want to see the miracles. We want to see the healings. We want to see the supernatural. And we sometimes neglect the most supernatural thing. That's taken place in our lives and in our heart. It looks like you being led by the Spirit to make decisions that please Jesus rather than your faith. It looks like an altar being filled in a church service as people seek after God for direction and application of the preached Word. It looks like your children's face as it lights up and they begin to understand the glorious gospel that I'm preaching about. Today, it looks like the face of someone that you take the time to invest in and teach a Bible study to and lead to the decisions of obeying the gospel. God is not fanatical about calming seas or raising the dead, but scripture tells us all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. One sinner. Can you imagine all of heaven? Thousands upon thousands of angels. And all of those that have gone on before us. Waiting in expectation as a sinner hears the gospel. And that person partners their will with the word. The, the, the soil is made soft enough and the word takes root. And they for the first time say, God, I'm a sinner and I need your help. And heaven erupts in celebration. What is it 
that God is fanatical about. What, where, what does it look like when God flexes? It looks like the application of the gospel. It looks like the application of the gospel. That's why Paul could stand and say, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed. I don't feel foolish today, United Church, preaching a message that I know you've heard before. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've come to put you in memory. And I've come to light a fire underneath you that there is something that the lost world around you needs to hear. There are steps of, of application that some still need to take. There are, there are so many things wrapped up in this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. It's the greatest message that could ever be preached. Excuse my excitement. There's nothing I would rather communicate to the church of the living God. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. God desires to flex a little bit today. The question is, are we willing to bear the image of His power? Are we willing to bear the image of His power? And this is where the rubber meets the road. Is there anything in your life that you need to repent of? Is there, are there areas of disobedience? Are there attitudes? Are there mindsets? Are there actions that aren't quite right? That's not embarrassing. Don't be ashamed. He said, I'm not ashamed. You shouldn't be ashamed either. Oh, I don't want anybody to know. No, no, no. Are you willing? Are you willing to bear the image? Of a flexing God? As you say, you know what? Yeah, I, I, I've got some things I need to work through. I'm going to repent today. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to allow God to flex in my life because I'm, I'm going to come to a place of repentance. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to put myself back on that cross. I'm going to take care of what the flesh is, has been leading me to do. It's going to be an opportunity. I know everyone here, I look around, I've, Seeing everyone here has been baptized in Jesus' name. That's wonderful. That's, that's worth celebrating. That's a great thing. That means you're not what you used to be. But let me remind you about the power of baptism because the enemy would love to convince you that it's not quite as powerful as it is. And the world says, once an addict, always an addict. Once you're a drunk, that's just what you are. You're, you know, you're a thief, you're always going to be a thief. You're a liar, you're always going to be a liar. But no, no, maybe that's true without the power of God. But when I went down in the waters of baptism, I came up and those things were destroyed. That's not me anymore. I, could, I can consciously make the decision to go back to those things, but I don't have to. They don't control me. Those labels have been removed. All the residue has been wiped away. I hate labels, especially building a house. They put labels on finished products. Like, why? Why? That's going to be on full display. And, but you know what? A lot of times you can't get all, you can get the label off, but there's all that, there's just that little residue. But listen, when you're, when you're baptized in Jesus' name, when you went down in those waters, every trace of residue was wiped away. Your sins were completely remitted. They are no longer laid charge. The Kool-Aid is gone. <laughs> Baptism is better than Tide Pods or whatever detergent you use. You're clean in the sight of God. Maybe you need the gift of the Holy Ghost. God can fill you with the Holy Ghost today. <laughs> today. Today's a good day to bear the image of a flexing God. Today's a good day to be filled with the Spirit of Jesus. Today's a good day to be refilled with the Spirit of Jesus. Well, you know, it's been a while. I remember that one time when I spoke in tongues. No, it's not meant to be a one time. The Apostle Paul said, I talk in tongues more than you all. Scripture talks about praying in the Holy Ghost. And it's not just a momentary flash in the sky, but there's a leading and a guiding Maybe it's time to pray through today. Maybe it's time to, to get close to God. Maybe I'm preaching to somebody that's experienced the full effect of the gospel. 
But you were tired when that pillar started to move. And you decided to leave your tent where it was. And so the Spirit has begun to, to move a little bit closer to the horizon. And you're looking at it through distant views. Today's a good day to catch up. You can get back where you need to be. Today's a good day to get there. God desires to flex today. That's what He wants to do. He wants to show forth His power. The question is, are you willing to bear the image of His power? I'm going to open these altars. Give you the opportunity to come and to pray. Will you let the Lord flex a little bit? Oh, Jesus. listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you'd like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online to fergusunited.org. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. That way you will be automatically notified of our new episodes. Thank you very much and we hope you have a great week. God bless you.